0: To Alper and the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, or mostly weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And as he does, generally speaking, during those mostly weekly appearances, Dave Cameron in what follows, analyzes all baseball. And while I won't discuss at length... Uh, what we do in fact discuss at length and what follows will provide the listener with some keywords. Uh, these are keywords like you would find in a library search, for example, search terms, search terms. Here they are: Zips projections for 2013, human bias, human bias is a topic. We discuss Earl Weaver, the deceased Earl Weaver, also Stan Musial Delman Young, New Phillies signing Delman Young, Spring Training, Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, car rentals, the horrors of. It'll be the last one. Car rentals, the horrors of it is. Uh, FanGraphs Audio does feature Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball, and it begins right now. Hey, this is a question, uh, I guess, just as much about baseball as it is uh, human bias, and and of course. When we're dealing with baseball analysis, we have to be aware of our biases, I guess, at the same time. But I've noticed that in preparing for, uh, for fangraphs, uh, Dan Zimborski's zips projections, there is always, well, I always is a strong word, but frequently there is, uh, there are one or two or three voices in the comment section that, um, uh, uh, commenters who feel compelled, to make note of exceptions to these projections to say, for example, with regard to Ryan Ludwig, uh, you know, how could you, uh, say this? How could you project these numbers for Ryan Ludwig? Look what he did last year during a, you know, a 12 week stretch. He was fantastic. Or, you know, alternatively, how could you say this about David Wright? Uh, he's clearly fantastic. These numbers are a joke, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, obviously, Dan Zimborski is producing these numbers via computer. Uh, I mean, he's, you know, he's looking at player performances from the past and, and to the degree to which those, you know, via algorithmic equations project numbers in the future, uh, considering things like age curve, et cetera. Uh, but how do you suppose – what do you suppose it is uh, about the projections that stirs in people uh, the need to confront them using a, a paucity of evidence, I guess? Well,
1: I think what we see in the fan projections is that uh, – in general, fans think that all good performances are going to be sustained and all bad performances are going to include regression, positive regression. So, if, you know, if you uh, were really good last year, that's evidence that you are going to continue to be really good. If you were really bad last year, there was probably something wrong with you and you're going to get better. Uh the fan projections are notoriously uh, overreaching and, and generally too high. Um, and I think for whatever reason, whether it's just, you know, fan optimism or a lack of understanding of uh, the value of sample size. Um, in general, fans only expect positive regression, or they expect positive regression far more than they expect negative regression. Um, I think that's what we see with, you know, a Ludwig commenter who wants to believe in, you know, uh, uh age 34 revival being real um, and is, is not willing to consider the fact that maybe it was just a fluke. So, uh, I think it's just a human trait, not necessarily something that has to do with the projections themselves, but, um, you know, they're fans for a reason, and they want to believe the best. And in general, I think the people who are commenting on these posts are probably fans of the team, and uh, they want their projection to be as rosy as possible.
0: Now, do you get a sense that this, um, that maybe these same biases uh, might ever exist in front offices?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think. There's no question that teams can get attached to players that they've developed. Um, you know, when you've invested a decent amount, especially like a high draft choice, your reputation is somewhat on the line with a certain player. I think it's one of the reasons we don't see prospect for prospects trades, uh, even when they might make sense. If a team has, a, you know, a bunch of pitching prospects and could use some offensive help, and you know, there's a team with a bunch of offensive prospects who, you know, might need some junk pitching, we don't usually see those deals very often. Uh, I think, in part because teams have staked their reputation on uh, drafting such a player and they've developed a lot into them and they they have a natural tendency to want to be justified for their previous decisions. Um, so I think that there's definitely a, a an aspect of um, inertia that comes into play because of of decisions that we've already made uh, and kind of feeling invested in those in those interests and not wanting to. Uh, give up on the hope that we had of them turning
0: out correctly. Can you think of any instances where teams or, or particular uh, front office members have have been uh, particularly uh, good about sort of perhaps recognizing their biases or, for example, or cutting ties maybe with a player who other, otherwise, uh, you know, we, we would have imagined them standing by for the reasons you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think maybe if, if – probably tough to see like a long-term pattern because front offices are you know generally not continuous uh organizations for long periods of time there's a lot of turnover but I mean I think we can look at Tampa Bay as a team that has not been afraid to um make a move and make an early call on some guys I mean they did that with Delman Young and Matt Garza um you know and said hey look you know maybe these are guys who have some talent have some upside but we're going to trade them anyway um you know I think that there's uh, been a, a willingness in Tampa's organization to um, move younger players uh who haven't yet, yet established themselves. And some of that might just be out of necessity, um, but I think that they're probably one organization you could point to and say, you know, like, you know it took down Young's uh, about as high draft as he possibly could. He was supposed to be the future of their franchise. It didn't take them very long to give up on him and say, you know, this, this guy isn't what we thought he was going to be. Let's, let's cash in now all we can.
0: Right. It, you know, it's it, um, it's. I guess it's interesting that you mentioned Young uh, because uh, just today, or maybe it was yesterday, reports have come out that the Phillies might be interested in Young. Uh, of course, Delman Young, I think, is, what, uh, maybe 27 now, entering his age 27 season, and has been uh, roughly replacement level uh, for as long as he's been in the major leagues and really hasn't, uh, in fact, changed a lot as a player since his early 20s. Uh, I, I'm curious, is this, is this just a question – Maybe the fact that um, teams are still attached to the idea that that, that Delman Young um, is the player or is about to be the player that many thought he would become? Or or maybe our teams, you know, maybe would the Phillies be taking a calculated risk with someone like Young?
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone believes that Delman Young is going to be what he thought he was anymore. I mean, even the Phillies, uh, who have, you know, earned some scorn from Pangrass over the years from their move, they're talking about Delman Young as a platoon bench outfielder. So they're not bringing in Young thinking he's going to be a 30 home run guy in the middle of their order to uh, rejuvenate their offense. Like They're looking at him as a as a a you know a part-time, bat-off-the-bench guy. Uh, if they thought Delman Young was about to break out at age 27, they'd be trying to sign him to a three-year deal and lock up some future value. With but they're, they're looking at a one-year, uh, low-cost, low-risk flyer type of contract. So I don't think anyone is under the... Um, false assumption that Delman Young is about to have a monster season uh, I do think that the Phillies are you know probably one of the last teams in major league baseball that doesn't really care too much about on-base percentage or at least not as much as most other teams do um, and are, you know still view home runs and RBIs as kind of the way to evaluate a hitter uh, Delman Young kind of specializes in uh, you know the skills that used to be valued but aren't as much anymore so the Phillies kind of make sense for a team that you know, isn't going to look at uh necessarily his defensive values in relation to his, you know, park-adjusted offensive metrics. They're going to look at the fact that Delman Young hit some home runs in the playoffs, and um he's got some bat speed, and he can make some contact, and they're going to see the positive things about Delman Young and probably gloss over the fact that he can't play defense and he doesn't walk, and he doesn't actually get for that much power, and he's a terrible base runner, and he's not a very good human being. And uh I think, you know, of all the teams in baseball, the Phillies are probably one of the few that would see value in, in delman young as a major league
0: player in 2013 yeah and I, I will add that i don't i don't know if we know he's uh, what sort of human being he is although um from the data points we have they're not all excellent
1: yeah, i'm not sure that it, you can be like an awesome human being and then accidentally like do racial epitaphs in the middle of the morning like i don't i don't think some of you just like <laughs> right <stumble laughs> right into okay, a, it's good a me- person and you're just like
0: it's a meaningful data point i guess it's it's a big one <laughs>
1: I think it's a big enough one. I <laughs> think we can say that if you're randomly telling people you don't like Jews, you're not a good human
0: being. Right? Yeah. Especially, I mean, if you're going to do it, maybe not on the street in New York. I mean, right? Maybe find another. Yeah. <laughs> so now, now we're saying he's both not a good human being
1: and dumb.
0: Well, it's not a genius place to. to I mean, <laughs> anyway, um, I'd just be a little bit more. Uh, discerning with your racist episodes, I guess. Uh, yeah. The, um, here's another question that uh, has come to my mind while uh, writing up these Zips projections. I, uh, I noticed, or I guess it became clear to me, I, I, I'm sorry, I had noticed it before, that the Reds, um, who are expected to be rather good in 2013, they uh, traded, I'd say they made mostly a low-profile trade for Jonathan Broxton uh, last year. Uh, Broxton, of course, had been signed by Kansas City uh, for $4 million, a $4 million one-year contract uh, because he hadn't really done a lot uh, since, uh, you know, sort of fizzling out with, um, with Los Angeles, the Dodgers. Um, it, based off of, um, you know, a pretty good performance with Kansas City and then a pretty excellent, actually, performance with Cincinnati in the second half of, of 2012 – the The Reds then sign him to I think a three year twenty one million dollar deal um, it, it you know feel free to correct me if that's wrong. What I really am interested in though is is to to what this seems like it happens um i mean with some frequency or with any frequency, I think it's sort of strange. if a team like Cincinnati um is benefits from a trade where they where a guy was signed only for four million dollars. Why is it that they then go out and pay that same precise guy $21 million when maybe they could find a similar sort of player, not exactly Jonathan Broxton, but a similar deal the next year and save money?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a few people brought that point up when they signed Broxton. It was like, you know, acquiring Jonathan Broxton should be the evidence that you need that you don't need to overpay a closer. Um, I think part of this comes down to the fact that, major league front offices and major league managers are not aligned in their decision-making at this point. And, you know, we can say whatever we want about, um, you know, the fact that the Reds were willing to give them this contract, and maybe that means that they don't, you know, uh, necessarily understand the fungibility of closers. But I think that there's a reality to the situation of uh, a GM maybe wanting to have different priorities than a manager, but having to work within the understanding of, of the manager that he's hired and the manager that he probably wants to keep on board In Dusty Baker's case, I think, you know, Walt Joggedy can look at it and say, Dusty Baker is not going to go into the the season with an unproven, potentially injured um, rehab kind of guy in his closer role. He believes the closer is extremely important, and he's um, just not going to trust that job to just anybody. And if I don't give him a proven closer – he's not going to move a role to Chapman to the rotation, and I want to move a role to Chapman of the rotation. So in order to get what I want, I have to give him a closer. So I'm going to go get a cheaper closer than, you know, a Jonathan bond but I'm going to go get some kind of guy that Dusty Baker will use in the ninth inning so that I can convince him to try a role to Chapman of the starter. But I think we, we see kind of teams maybe compromises at times where they give managers what they want in order to keep them placated and uh, kind of, you know, get them on board with the overall plan, even if it might not be their optimal decision because there's not a lot of managers out there who see things kind of from the bigger front office picture managers generally want to win every year they want to do whatever it takes to maximize their wins in that season uh they want to reduce the risk they want to reduce their stress levels um they're not necessarily overly concerned with getting bargains in terms of salary they just want to put the best team on the field and, and win as many games as they can and I, I almost think of it like a marriage you know like I love my wife. I think she's awesome. But there are things that we own that I would not have purchased on my own, uh, but I agree <laughs> to purchase because she's interested in them and she likes them. And, uh, you know, buying them for her makes me makes me uh, uh, look like a better husband and improves my marriage overall. So, you know, maybe we own uh, $200 curtains in a room that I never go into that I would have been fine with traits from Walmart. Uh, but in order to, you know, improve the quality of my marriage, I buy overpriced drapes because it's just not a fight worth having.
0: Would you rather be married to your wife or to Dusty Baker, I mean, from what you know?
1: I'm pretty sure my wife looks better in a skirt than Dusty
0: would. <laughs> Although Dusty uh, has slimmed down quite a bit in recent years. It's
1: true. I saw him at the winter meeting and he looked like he had lost a significant amount of weight, but yeah. he was still significantly larger than my wife.
0: Yes, that's also true. That's also true. Um, well, you know, actually, while we're on the subject of managers, um, of course, this past weekend, um, uh, two uh, two important figures in baseballing history uh, passed away. Uh, y- you wrote about uh, Stan Musial, and I want to get to, to Stan Musial and, and sort of um, his significance and understanding him in, a, in present context, what all, what all that would mean. Um, but uh, also, one of, um, one of the deceased is uh, Earl Weaver. Um, who has a reputation as being one of the great managers of all time? Not not merely um, among among baseball nerds, but uh, I think generally speaking. Of course, he uh, he won a lot of games. So I think he won at least one, if not two, World Series. Uh, now, I have to admit, um, I have to admit that I have not read Weaver on strategy, which um, which I think is probably a shortcoming in my own person. Um, I don't know if you have or or haven't. You don't need to say whether you have or have not. Um, but would you uh, maybe w- uh, consider waxing authoritative uh, in discussing briefly Earl Weaver's contributions to the art of managing, uh, and maybe uh, what managers have or have not learned from from his success?
1: Yeah, I actually haven't read all of Weaver on strategy either. I think I borrowed it, uh, I don't know, ten years ago or something like that. I didn't get through the whole thing for reasons I can't remember. Anything it wasn't that I wasn't entertained by it. I, just, I remember only reading about half of it. Um I think part of it is I already, you know, had been, a, agreed to a lot of these ideas. And so it was neat to see a manager, you know, talking about platoons and, uh, you know, the value of a flexible bench. But it wasn't necessarily something that was new and invigorating in, in 2000s. But I think when you remember back that he was kind of the only guy doing this stuff in the 70s, uh, it was definitely new. And he, he was cutting edge then. And I think one of the things that baseball does really well um and I think you can kind of understand Musial a little bit is uh, appreciates the people who are ahead of their time or who who you are unique in um, kind of their era. And, you know, so Earl Weaver might not be, you know, any kind of genius compared to what we know thirty years later. And, you know, perhaps even his batter pitcher platoon split uh fascination would be something that we would probably suggest he not pay as much attention to. Um, but I think overall the fact that Weaver was thinking analytically, uh, looking at w- different ways, not just accepting uh, the norms of the time and not just, you know, kind of going along with the flow and doing what the book said he should do, uh, that made Weaver, you know, a bit of a radical thinker in his time. And, uh, you know, when you have someone who's that far ahead of the curve, they certainly deserve recognition for, for thinking in a way that, you know, required creative ideas and not just uh, taking inspiration from others. I also think Weaver gets an a extra credit because he was a colorful character who liked to curse a lot. And for whatever reason, we like managers who throw tantrums and, you know, like uh, get ejected from games. Uh, I saw a bunch of people on Twitter over the weekend talking about how great it was to, to go see a double header and watch we Weaver get thrown out of both games. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's kind of an interesting thing to me that that is something that we co- place value on, is uh the public display of anger. Um, but people find you know baseball entertaining, and they find managers arguing with umpires entertaining. I don't find it quite as entertaining as <laughs> most do, probably. Uh, but I think Weaver gets a little extra credit for being willing to you know tell a manager to go F it himself.
0: Well, I I would argue that uh, I mean if nothing else, it suggests and, and maybe to a certain type of fan, it suggests that um, the manager cares about winning, and in a, in, a, in a theatrical way um, that that makes it you know perhaps more clear. I'm sure that there are a number of. Ma- I mean, I know Ron Reneke, um, you know, whose uh, antics I've been exposed to, um, you know, with some frequency living in, in Wisconsin. Ron Reneke is one of the calmest managers, I would say, in the major leagues. Um, and I, that's fine as well, obviously. And it's not to suggest that Ron Reneke doesn't care about winning a game. But if you see that it bothers someone in, in a personal way, I think, you know, it might resonate with fans. Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess, I don't know. This is something that I thought over the last few years where I, I mean, i've i seen managers who are not uh super vocal they've had this criticism of a lack of passion leveled against them and um you know especially when the team's not winning they really want to see you know so the manager go out and get some dirt and throw some bases and you know uh like the lou panella kind of idea of what a, what a manager should do to fire up his team uh i don't i guess to me personally it just appears like immaturity. Like this is something that we generally tend to teach our kids not to do at a young age. They go to Walmart and start throwing things on the ground and, um, you know, I mean, a giant fit, you know, we think that they're poorly behaved. We don't think it's entertaining. And so it's just, it's interesting to me that something that isn't socially acceptable in any other walk of life <laughs> is considered yeah, uh, not only acceptable, but like a positive as long as you're wearing a major uh, uniform. I mean, if you were, a, you know, an accountant that. Uh, You know, some kind of HR block or something, and someone came in to to file their taxes, and you were in the back throwing computers all over the place (laughs) and you'd get fired.
0: Well, it it should be said. I don't understand
1: exactly why immaturity in a major league manager is considered a plus.
0: It should be said that Jeff Sullivan is guilty of a lot of that same behavior during our, our managerial meetings on Fridays.
1: It's true, but thankfully we all work from home and no one has to witness his immaturity, uh, except for when he writes and he puts it
0: on display. Well, yeah, that's right, yeah. And I will say more than anyone, uh, Jeff Sullivan's work is just a transcript of uh, of his actual thought process. To read a, to read a Jeff definitely Sullivan definitely article true. is to spend like seven minutes with Jeff Sullivan, essentially.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in, in spending time with him, it's uh, – it's actually amazing after you're done hanging out
0: with him, he just hands you a transcript of the entire thing. They go and be like, oh, yeah. this is my time with Jeff. It is. A, yeah, that is a weird thing about, about yeah. Uh Now, you also, uh, you discussed, though, some of uh, stem Usual. And I, I don't know, first of all, whether it's good or bad that this is the case, but it's obviously the case uh, that when certain notable figures pass away, we become more aware of their contributions. I, I guess, you know, I guess it makes sense. I'm not going to complain about it one way or the other. Um but you, uh, you did a post on, uh, Monday, uh, regarding, uh, Stan Usual um, and placing him, especially with regard to, um, his contact ability and, uh, his capacity to hit for power, um, what that would be like if he were, um, if he were a modern player. Uh, could you talk about your findings so far as that's concerned?
1: Yeah. I mean, basically I just adjusted his strikeout rate and have isolated 14 percentages into 2012 norms in order to try and make them a little bit more relatable. I mean, when I look like at Fan visual player page, when I see a career 5% strikeout rate, you know, you kind of don't understand what that means. Like, you think that, you know, either he was one Pierre, which is basically a modern-day 5% strikeout rate, or the game was so different that you don't really know what context to put the the rate into. Was that good? Was that bad? I mean, you think it's probably good, but you don't really know. At least I didn't really know. So I just adjusted for league averages and kind of came up with a, an index stat, kind of like ERA minus or WRC plus, K percentage of ISO, um, and then, you know, multiplied those by the league averages of 2012, and came out with, you know, mutuals translated numbers into last year, it would have come out with something like a 10% strikeout rate and a 290 ISO, which um, in the conclusionary paragraph I said basically it would be as a Darwin Barney's uh, plate discipline and contact approach uh, merged with Josh Hamilton's power. I think that we think that you know some combination or some marriage of Josh Hamilton and Darwin Barney at the plate would be pretty good.
0: Yeah, I mean that is, uh, and I, I think by War uh, Musial's a top ten player all time. Is that right?
1: Number number nine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's uh, that's also a good player.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think you know there's there's a discussion in the comments of the, the post about. Um, kind of, comp- level of competition, usual did come up during World War II, and the, the talent levels depleted. He didn't play before integration, although he also played after integration. But, you know, I think it's interesting when we talk about, um, historical context. And, you know, I've heard, you know, baseball people even claim, like, if you put Dave Ruth in today's game, he would, he would barely be able to play and he wouldn't be very good. Uh, because today the athletes are so much bigger and stronger. and uh, But I, I mean, I understand where they're coming from and it's probably true that if you just took Stan Mutual as he was in 1947 and placed him in Major League Baseball in 2013, he might not be an amazing player. But I, I wish people understood it, you know, that the entire point of, of, uh, being good at baseball or is, is winning games, playing against the people that you're playing against. Right. Uh, you know, we shouldn't necessarily treat the major leagues from the 1940s as, as a minor league because, uh, you know, just because it was a different level of talent. There's a lot of changes in terms of, uh, you know, travel and, uh, technology and medical uh, facilities. And, you know, the, the entire game was different. than so for, you know, people that denigrate Mutual, uh, or any of the players, you know, from, from a while ago without incorporating the fact that if you put major in 2013, you would, you know, get to do weight training and he would have a nutritionist and uh, he would fly on private jets. And, uh, you know, I think that we, we just have to understand that the game is drastically different and we should honor the players from each era who stood at the top of their realm uh, relative to those they played against. Um,
0: are there are there players – and again, I, I'm, I made the comment or I noted, um, you know, with regard to Musial and Weaver, we tend to recognize the sort of height of their accomplishments only after they've passed – uh, is there any player or you know is there any figure whose accomplishments maybe uh, to whom we've given uh, too little credit it, maybe it would make sense to to celebrate them uh, while they're, while they're still alive is there a player along the lines of a mutual or a manager along the lines of a weaver who've accomplished something like that that we're sort of uh, you know maybe because they've been out of the spotlight for a certain amount of time we haven't fully appreciated their uh, their contributions or their excellence
1: I think that's probably less the case now that we have, you know, so much communication and so much content, and the Internet has obviously changed the entire information world, um, where, you know, now kind of the uh, – it's a pretty common article to read every year. Who's the most underrated player in baseball? Uh, or, you know, the Hall of Fame arguments every year are pretty passionate in favor of a guy like Tim Raines or Bert Blylevin or whoever it may be, or guys who, you know, in previous years when all there was was, you know, the sporting news or sports illustrated in your local magazines or your local newspapers, um, you know, they might not get as much coverage. Nowadays, you know, there's uh, someone out there writing about every player in baseball and uh, every manager in baseball. And I think, you know, if you look at someone like, you know, the Earl Weaver of today's game or of recent history, maybe not so much on the forward thinking side of things Oh, to to some extent, but I mean Tony La Russa, you know, has multiple world series titles. He hits the pitcher eight. He has. You know, he had kind of invented the modern bullpen or at least popularized it. Um, there's there's a lot of things where you can give Tony LaRuza credit for that, you know, were out-of-the-box thinking, and he won a, an awful lot of games during his career. But I don't, I don't think that anyone thinks that Tony LaRuza is underrated. If anything, I'm tired, I'm tired of Tony Marissa. Uh And so I think, you know, in this day and age, it's really hard to maintain both a level of excellence along the lines of Weaver and mutual and not achieve some kind of extreme notoriety and fame I mean, I, you know, I think even like Chipper Jones, who's probably, you know, similar than usual as a player, uh, you know, a great hitter, who had a really long career. Chipper basically got a victory last round uh, League baseball last year and got a standing ovation from every fan base he visited, uh, even though he was an opposing player. I think people understand now when we see a player of that stature um, who had that kind of career, they get a proper send off.
0: Right. And and maybe it happens too, you know, because Chipper Jones is what 40 years old now. You know, if he lives another 50 years and if a lot of those years are, you know, outside of baseball, um then, you know, maybe then then we revisit it then. I mean, I don't know if you or I will be around, but someone, you know, but uh, someone will revisit it then and be like, "Oh, you know, um Chipper Jones is really good when he played and and uh, we haven't thought about him for a long time." I mean, that that might be the cause of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see how baseball history changes in the next while. Because I think, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, I learned baseball history basically from books. There was there's very little video of, um, you know, the the greats of all time. You know, there's a there's a few videos out there, but there's not a lot. Um, and it's you know it's hard to really relate to uh, players that you don't get to you know hear from or see talk or see play. Uh, you're basically reading accounts of other people talking about their experiences with those guys. The next generation isn't going to have anything like that. We have video archives of every player who ever played and basically every game, you know, for the last while. I think you know this generation of baseball fans is going to grow up and say, "Oh man, I didn't get to see King Griffey Junior. play. That's okay. I'm just going to go online, pay 3.99 or whatever it's going to be, uh, and watch every game he ever played. And that's how I'm going to teach myself about King Junior. And I think they're going to have a very different experience with uh, learning about the greats that came before them than, than we all did.
0: Do you think uh, um, do you think that tomorrow's baseball fan needs to know about Kelvin Herrera's changeup or Kelvin Herrera's uh, changeup?
1: You know, I'm a big fan of it as well. I know I know both of us are are, are large fans of that pitch. So you know, I don't know that it will go into the Hall of Fame someday, but I think it's worth knowing about.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, get yourself get thyself to a GIF of Kelvin Herrera's changeup. Uh, it's uh, it's very good. Uh, um, let's see, where, where are we here? Uh, a couple more things. Oh, let's do, uh, some quick questions. Um, Mike Napoli's contract changed quite a bit with Boston. Um, uh, how much of this is shocking? I guess there was a hip problem.
1: Yeah, I don't think any of this is shocking. I mean, you know, when he originally signed for three thirty-nine, and then he bunked his physical, basically, uh, I think when you're looking at a 30 year old catcher or 32 year old catcher with some miles on his legs who has, uh, you know, an issue with his legs, uh, might not be able to catch much longer, um, might not be able to play every day much longer. Uh he's not gonna get 39 dollars. Like that was a contract that clearly wasn't gonna hold up. Um, you know, and they talked about putting in some protective languages, but you know, at that point it just made more sense to do a one year deal. Um, give him some incentive in- clauses based on plate appearances. And if Mike Napoli can, you know, give six hundred plate appearances and play a bunch of games behind the behind catcher, they'll they'll pay him the thirteen million he was going to do, and he can try and you know, be a free agent again next winter. Um, but it, and probably in a more likely scenario, if he only gets 350 to 400, and you spend some time on a disabled list. Then now the Red Sox are protected; they don't have a long-term commitment. So, you know, when you have a guy on the wrong side of his 30s with health problems, you, you shouldn't be looking at a multi-year deal.
0: Okay, uh, uh, Matt Harrison and the Rangers. I think Matt, Matt Harrison signed, a, I guess, a five-year, 55 million dollar extension with the Rangers. Uh, that sort of level of commitment um, from Texas might have come as a surprise to people, um, but maybe not a surprise to people who um, have uh, I don't know necessarily watched uh, Harrison pitched or you know, looked at his uh, player page recently.
1: Yeah, Matt Harrison's really good. I think this is one of those instances where um, you know the lionization of strikeout rate is like you know the number one skill for a pitcher is uh cause pitchers like Harrison to be undervalued. And, you know, he's not a huge strikeout guy, but he is a pretty good stuff guy. And he uses that stuff to get a lot of ground balls. And he throws strikes. And, uh, you know, that combination of uh getting a lot of ground balls towards Adrian Bultry and Elvis Andres turns into, you know, not very many runs. So, uh, you know, he might be in a pretty good situation for a left-handed ground ball guy, but he also pitches in Texas. So, you know, we can't just all say his, uh, his success is based on his context. Uh, I think Harrison is probably a three- to four-win pitcher in the prime of his career. Um, you know, he's two years away from free agency, so he wasn't going to get paid like Matt Keane or Joel Hamill did. But he's not that far removed from, you know, that level of pitcher. And he basically got half of what Keane got and almost a third of what Hamill got. So uh I like the deal for Texas thing, buying three years of free agency it basically paying just a little bit above average um, in terms of, you know, what we'd expect them in, in, in terms of dollars for war. I think, you know, as long as Harrison stays healthy, he's easily going to earn this contract. With any pitcher, you can you know, there's a chance of injury, but unless you just plan on recycling your pitching staff every year, uh, keeping pitchers like Matt Harrison around at, you know, below market rates is a good
0: idea. Uh, this past Thursday, uh, all 16 participants in the World Baseball Classic uh, submitted their provisional rosters for the WBC. The Netherlands club, the, ne- the Netherlands national team, features uh, Elton Simmons, uh, Jerickson Profar, Jonathan Scope, the the Baltimore uh, prospect, and also Xander Bogarts, uh, the, the the Boston um, the Boston shortstop prospect. How would you line that team up, and uh, how do you think they will be lined up?
1: Well, well I think they'll just, you know probably stick Bogart at third. Uh, you know he's the bigger of the two, so he'll he'll shift over. And then there's Ben Nachter, he might play third. Major league eventually so anyway. So I think they'll probably just line up the infielders kind of uh you know. By size, essentially, so Profar will play short. Um, you know, Shope will probably play second. Uh, Volgaire at third. They might switch those two, but, you no, know, I'm pretty sure you'll see Profar at shortstop, stop, and then the bigger guys will shift off of the position. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see, especially because the Netherlands also has, uh, Local on meals, who's 7-1 and like, 200. Oh, yeah, pounds. that's right.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh,
1: so they're, they're gonna be a pretty large team. I think, you know, if this is a basketball tournament, they'd be doing really well.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, it is, uh, sort of strange because I believe that, I mean, they essentially take from two, uh, from two regions, and one of those is the, what is, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the Caribbean, I guess.
1: Or, yeah, the Antilles.
0: Right. And then the other one is just, is the Netherlands. So it's, right. uh, it's two kind of distinct sets of people. It's actually, you see this quite a bit in, um, international play in soccer, uh, in France, because, um, they colonized so widely, uh, during the, the terrible 19th century. Um, you know, you find at points that, uh, you know, Close to ninety percent of their national team is made up of foreigners. Um,
1: yeah, I think this speaks as like a, a benefit of uh, colonization and taking over the world. I mean, yeah. I think it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that is know, problem. It is, it is, this is uh, Alexander the Great's idea. Uh, yeah, playing out in twenty-first century realism.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. It is actually. It is that is sort of the rotten part is that teams that were uh, most exploitative of other. Uh, smaller nations during the 19th century have been have been rewarded for that um, by having dominant uh, athletic clubs. Uh, last last thing I want to talk about um, you uh, you did today uh, you wrote a piece on uh, spring training advice um, yeah. for, for Arizona.
1: It, it looks you can as tell a... there's a lot going on in baseball when I'm writing about uh, Phoenix.
0: Well, no, but it's important, right? And it's uh, it's fun to get there. You spent a long time discussing the importance of getting a rental car. Uh, from not the airport. This is this is something, I and mean, I know I know from other discussions, you're passionate about this topic.
1: Yeah, I think I am like vested in seeing people not spend their vacation being miserable at the airport. And there are a few things might be more miserable than running a car from Sky Harbor International. I, I just don't understand. Uh, I mean, I guess you know, unless you just. I, I can't honestly think of one reason why you should do it uh you know given the um, of tabs that are available that will take you to non- airport locations who will charge you a fraction of the price not make you wait in line uh there's just no reason to run a car from the airport uh it's not it's not more convenient because it's not actually at the airport you still have to take a shuttle so the the idea of being able to just drive and walk to the gates and drop off your car that doesn't exist um cause it's not attached to the airport and you still have to you know, be transported there in another vehicle, just as if you went from a non airport location and take a cab. Um, there's just really no positives to doing it. And, you know, I see, uh, you know, the couple times I read it from Sky Harbor, um, you know, just looks of forlorn faces in generally lots of Cubs jerseys, uh, wanting to get to the ballpark, uh, you know, knowing that it's really nice outside, knowing they paid a lot of money to come watch some baseball and instead they're waiting for somebody to tell them that they don't have their car available it's just it's, it's horrible and it should be avoided
0: yeah it is a uh, it is not actually funny and you're right it is not very close to the airport i mean it's not like it's not much further from the airport or much closer to the airport than than some of the other city locations from which you can just take a cab as you know
1: yeah it's a, it's just the number one advice I could you have anyone going to Phoenix is don't want to come from the airport. You know, like if you do anything on that list, just do that and you'll have a better time.
0: Right. Um yeah and you're right about Cubs fans. They're everywhere there and they're all they're all sunburned.
1: <laughs> there are a lot of Cubs fans. For whatever <laughs> reason though, I mean the Cubs fans love to go to Mesa and uh you know hang out and you know, usually that's like the toughest ticket in Arizona is trying to get into a, you know, a Cubs don't get in Mesa. They're almost always sold out. Yeah, uh, which is, you know, it's just an annual thing. Like, Chicago goes,
0: you know. Uh, yeah, um, one thing you didn't note, um, and I'm curious to see your thoughts on it, I have my own opinions, is the best place to see a game uh, in that era. I think there are, what, 14 uh, 14 teams now play down there? I
1: think it's 16. There's 16. nine 16. stadiums. So uh, and most of them have two
0: teams. Yeah, Not yeah. all of them, but most have two. Yeah. Uh, is it Talking Stick, that where the uh, – See, the Rockies and Diamondbacks, I believe, play at Salt River, Talking Stick. Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, that's that's the nicest stadium, there's no question. It's also the most expensive, and it's usually full. So I guess that depends on what you're after. I think, you know, if I was going to send my parents to a game uh, in Arizona, I would send them to Talking Stick because it's the most comfortable, the chairs are the nicest, the sight lines are the nicest, the restrooms are the biggest, there's you know the most convenient food options, Parking's not that far away. Like, you know,
0: it's
1: just a, it's the best replica of Major League Baseball in Arizona. Maybe maybe even uh, – I haven't been to Chase Field recently, but it's,
0: you know, on that level. Well, no, but what's uh, it, what's, what's cool think, about it, I will say, is that, like, it is kind of like if you just took a Major League Park and shrunk it to scale. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like.
1: It's right. like if you took 30,000 seats away from a Major League Park, this is what you'd
0: have. Right. Um, but, but there's but uh, think, other you know, criteria?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're just like a, you know, a kid in your twenties by yourself, don't want to do a game where you don't necessarily care about, like, the creature comfort aspect, uh, I actually really like Goodyear, um, uh, where the reds and the even play, uh, especially if you sit behind the plate where it's shaded and you get a really nice view of, uh, the pitcher, uh, it's always, not always, uh, you know, super crowded there, so you can get some pretty good seats. Um, you know, I, I, I like the Goodyear facility for just a, you know, watching a game by yourself, um, I think if you're going for minor league players, it's a totally different ball, ball of wax. So, like, you know, a lot of guys like to go to the backfield and like to watch the prospects take the adding practice and, you know, kind of um, see a lot of the guys, you know, for sort the of future. Peoria um, is great for that because there's uh, they don't charge, so if you're not actually going to go to the Cactuses game, it's free, um, and it's easy to walk around to those fields to see the Mariners and Padres prospects. There's not really a guard, you know, trying to keep you out or um, – Make you walk along dangerous roads as I have been made to do in surprise when one guard didn't like the way I was trying to go from the Rangers camp to the Royals camp. Oh so,
0: yes, I was uh, with you during that occasion, and maybe I'm responsible for it. I apologize in advance, but yes. We no, it wasn't
1: your walk... fault. It was grumpy McGrumperson didn't want us walking the twelve feet between their two camps and Which, a with a with a name like that, entirely.
0: with a name like that, you would assume that he, you know, his parents should have been nicer about his name. Yeah, I think that he was doomed to be a, a mean old man. Yeah, he right. certainly acted like one that day. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's right. We had to walk along. Like, I mean, there's no, no such thing as like a nice road in Arizona. I mean, for driving, yeah. yes, but like as a pedestrian, it's never going to be nice. They're all like basically highways, and so we were out walking beside it for like 15 minutes before we found our way to the Royals. Park. Yeah, it was
1: like two miles along Bell Road, which <laughs> was like a major thoroughfare with even <laughs> Uh, simply because he didn't want us to cross over from the Rangers side of camp to the Royal side of camp by walking through the area where the players walked from the clubhouse. Despite the fact that there were no players walking from the clubhouse, they were already at the fields. Yeah. He just didn't want us trotting on that same ground. So he made us exit the stadium, walk uh, a couple of miles, and then come back in on the other side. Was,
0: well, did you not awesome. have, so, I guess you probably didn't have at that point last year, your uh, your BBWAA credential.
1: I didn't, but I don't think it would have made a difference. You don't think uh, so? No. Now, I think there's, I mean, you know, even down in Arizona, it's certainly a more relaxed atmosphere, but there's still press gates and there's still uh, areas that are off limits and player only and staff only. And that, you know, the, the 20 feet that we wanted to traverse to go from one side to the other of the complex was designated a uh, players-only area. And he was, he, his entire job was basically to make sure that uh, normal-looking human beings didn't, didn't cross his path.
0: Yeah. That's true. All right.
1: Well, go so to uh, surprise if you want to be yelled at by old men. Yeah. Um, but okay. you know, for prospect watching, I think Peoria is uh, one of the best. Uh, then you're stuck watching the Mariners and Padres prospects. But they have better farm systems than the most, and uh, you know the parking situation is good. The the access to the players is good. Um, well, certainly so with regard to standpoint,
0: with regard to the Mariners, um, watching their prospects might be more profitable than than watching their big league team. Well, I think
1: that's one of the tricky things is, uh, you know, if you go to see the Mariners' best prospects, you're probably not going to see them on the backfield because they're almost all at Major League camp, right? So,
0: you know, yeah. if you want to go
1: see Mike Veneno and Taiwan Walker and James Paxton, you might have to go to the Cactus League game uh, or watch Major League batting practice or, you know, so they're generally not going to be at Minor League camp. If you want to see the best prospects on the backfield, you kind of have to aim for, like, the lower A-ball guys, the short-season guys, uh, the younger players who didn't get Major League invites, because um, otherwise they'll they'll be in major league camp and you won't get to
0: see them. Where do we get to see Vinny Catricola? Uh, he'll probably not be in major league camp. Uh, actually, he's on the he's on the forty man roster, so he will be in major league camp, but probably not for very long.
1: Considering how bad he was in AAA last year, they'll be reassigning him to minor league camp not too long into spring training.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, anyway. Uh, okay, you've done uh, you've done all you need to do. In fact, more I think. Uh, what a uh, what a contribution this week, uh, Dave Cameron, as you attempt to analyze all baseball.
1: Thanks. you know and the fun part is uh you know we didn't even talk about the mike Morse John jaco trade which I think it would be the uh, probably the thing I would have had the most opinions about but I'm okay not talking about
0: it. yeah i uh I know talking Mariners with you is uh I don't know it's uh, I, you always have like a, a dirge of sadness that comes into your voice that i I don't want. I don't want to subject. The that's just to
1: really it. when I talk to you in general.
0: Yeah, well, there's that too. Always a sweetheart, Dave Cameron. Always a yes. sweetheart. Thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for joining us for your weekly contribution to Fangraphs Audio. My pleasure. All right, that's Dave Cameron. His pleasure. Uh, our pleasure too. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.